Today's episode is made possible by Gallery 101, a remarkable art gallery nestled in the heart of Basalt, Colorado. Gallery 101 is co-owned by the talented twin artists Ingrid D. Magidson and Sybil Hill Carter, who together form a dynamic and influenced female force in the art world. Their extraordinary artwork has graced galleries across the nation. To explore their captivating creations and learn more about Ingrid and Sybil's artistic journey, visit their website at www.gallery101basalt.com. Again, that's www.gallery101basalt.com. Now let's get back to the podcast. Hi, Irina. Hi, Bella. Welcome to Moments That Define Us podcast. I'm particularly excited about the conversation today because I can relate and I know there are so many people in the workforce that will relate to the story and some of the people are probably going through it right now. Yeah, I'm excited. I think this is something a lot of people can relate to and it's just an important topic that isn't really discussed I think I think the conversation is being had. Is that the right grammar, being had? Yeah, I feel like people wait until they're in crisis to have it, though. Yeah, just like with a lot of things. Today, we're talking about uh, workforce and burnout, specifically corporate burnout, you know, and how you... And hopefully after this, you will see that there is a way out of it and you don't have to live like this. You want to introduce our guest? Yeah, so I met um, Jamie... Um, six years ago. Yeah, right around the time my daughter was born. And then we spent some time together. And then um, I've been following Jamie on social media and everywhere and kind of um, know a little bit of of what happened. um, And just to in her life, like in a professional life and kind of what led her to start her amazing company, which called Kiwi Collective. So, Jamie, welcome to Moments That Define Us podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's a joy to be here with both of you. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about Jamie is going to tell us her amazing story. And like I've mentioned before, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. So, um, Jamie used to work in a tech world in California, and then a lot of things happened that led to burnout and a lot of other things that led her to starting her amazing company. So, Jamie, why don't we start with how you got into tech? Yeah, it um, it was by accident. <laughs> And I was in um, HR as well. And that was also by accident. So, and by accident, I mean, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't a career I planned. I actually started my life thinking I'd be a ballet dancer. So tech and HR is like the opposite end of the spectrum from that in many ways. But I, um, I will say that my first job out of college was in 2008 when the market crashed. And so I was just applying to every job that existed to get into the workforce post-college. And that actually landed me inside of recruiting a component of, of HR. And I was 
I was staffing travel nurses around the, the world. That led me then to another job that was just, I was just searching for ways to continue to grow. And sometimes you can grow inside of a company and sometimes you have to grow outside of a company. And so that job led me to another role where I was touching HR components, but instead of recruiting, I was more project managing large talent acquisition products. And then that led me to another, you know, it just kind of kept going. And eventually I landed in a staffing, another staffing role in Santa Barbara, California. And I was able to go behind the scenes at all of these companies within the town to try to see if they needed staffing help. And I started you know, learning about tech companies and one in particular that was founded in Santa Barbara, Sonos, um, which is an incredible company, an incredible product. And I never knew, I, I'm from Vermont. I'm from a small town in Vermont where there's just now cell phone. Like I had really no idea what I was getting myself into in California and then um, looking into some of these companies. And so, so long story short, my first real in-house HR job inside of the tech world was at Sonos. Um, and I was really pitching work to them. And then I ended up meeting the head of their HR department um, and never knew I'd worked with HR before, but they were my client. And so this was the first time experiencing an HR leader in the many years up to my career that seemed progressive and inspiring and cared about their employees. And so I was really drawn to it. And I ended up working uh, for her and for Sonos for a few years. And when she left Sonos, she went to San Francisco to another company, Atlassian, um, which is even maybe more tech. It's all about software. There's no tangible physical product. And I moved to San Francisco not knowing anybody. And that really spun me into um, a really important part of my career and and a lot of leadership roles and and growth um at Atlassian for 6 years. So how how long did you work for Sonos for how many years? It was 2 years. 2 years. And how was that because you mentioned that you work with the leader that really care about her employees, right? And progressive and all of that. Did you did you have like overall good experience at the first tech company? I did. I did. I was, I mean, it was a brand new world and it was all centered around music and I love music. So coming from being a dancer and, and the ties to music there um, and just, just being a lover of music generally. So I was in this brand new space. HR really was new. I, HR was my client up until this point um, and inside of, inside of tech. And so it was fast paced. It was exciting. We were able to innovate and create and build and bring our ideas. Like it was very energizing and you could really kind of, you know, sink your teeth into so many different aspects of um, your role because the company was, I, I think around 1100 people at the time and really fast growing. Um, and so you got to wear so many different hats and share your thoughts and ideas. So it was an incredible experience and I happened to have an amazing uh, manager um, who was in a senior leadership role with a lot of influence as well. So, um, you know, I, I lucked out, I'd say, that first tech job. Nice. You know, shout out to Sonos because we have like, I think, three or four of their products. 
and I love them all. <laughs> I love them all. It talks all over my house. Um, okay, so two years, your manager from Sonos moves to San Francisco. You followed her, as I remember, right? Because she left, you wanted uh, to follow her. Is that, am I remembering that right, right? Yeah, I did. I, you know, things, when she left, um, uh, a lot changed for me. I realized how important she was to my experience because there wasn't a, you know, a leader that really filled her shoes in the same way for me. And so I had such a good rapport with her and I, and it, it was probably one of the first, if, if the first managers that really inspired me and, um, really took care of me, like really cared about me and my career. So when she left a lot changed for me, um, I didn't expect to follow her, but when she, you know, she um, eventually had an opening um, that I was interested in and it became kind of a no-brainer. Um, though a big scary move from another small town, Santa Barbara, beautiful, to a very unknown city, San Francisco. I'd, I had never been there before, even. I had never visited. So. so you decide to follow her. You come to San Francisco. Was there, I guess, a defining moment for you why you decided to make that move? Was it just your manager on her own or was it something else that pushed you because like you said you grew up in a small town right then Santa Barbara gosh I've been there like I think twice such a beautiful town you decide to move what what motivated you to move besides just the manager oh yeah there was it was a big decision I well I'll just share a little bit about me because part of it is um, traveling and new experiences is just in my DNA I think and I lived in Vermont, I've lived in Toronto, I've lived in Indiana and Florida and Chicago and then Santa Barbara. So something happens when you travel or have to move a lot where you at some point or get, get that itch for a change. So I had been in Santa Barbara for, um, I think it was four and a half years at the time. And it started feeling like a small town again. And I was starting to crave more of a challenge and, you know, more access to live music and the ballet and just more cultural um, components that an urban life brings. Though I was a little like timid about um, moving to a city. It was something I always dreamed of doing. I thought it would be in New York because I was a ballet dancer on the East Coast growing up. So New York was kind of the big dream, but here I was in California. So it was San Francisco. And um, so there was something about just challenging myself, always having had a dream to live in a city and see what that feels like. Um, and then, you know, just different personal aspects of my life that were, you know, just um, maybe not serving me the same way anymore. And so just change itself was something that felt like I needed. Okay. Before we go to San Francisco, because you mentioned ballet, which I knew that about you, but you said, okay, I thought that I was going to be a ballet dancer. What happened that you didn't pursue ballet? That is, talk about a defining moment. That is one of mine for sure. So um, I, I mentioned I grew up in a really small town and um, I was fortunate because rural Vermont, you don't think ballet, you know, like that's not, you know, it's, you know, maybe farming for sure, uh, but not, not ballet. And so I was very fortunate because there was a, a couple who retired 
in Vermont or thought that they were going to retire. And they stumbled upon this little ballet company that had, I don't know, 35 students and they practiced in a town hall and um, my family had moved there. And so I was dancing. I was, I was around seven and they were from, you know, they had experience at the Stuttgart Ballet in Germany and in Estonia and they were, you know, professional dancers. Um, they took over the school and saw something in me and it became my true passion. And they really um, kind of groomed me and, and gave me such incredible training that it got to a point where they said, you know, we can't, we can't teach you anymore. We've taught you all we can, and you really need to go away to school. And so we were talking about, they had friends of the Kirov ballet. We were talking about me going to London and my mom's like, Whoa, she is 11. She is not going across the pond. <laughs> so one of the other best ballet schools of the time was in Toronto, which felt a little bit closer, obviously to Vermont. And so long story short, through a very rigorous process, I got in and I moved and I was going to be there for, you know, the rest of my schooling, um, boarding school, live there alone. And you're almost guaranteed because of the rigorous nature of the audition program, a spot in their company. So I had made it like I was like, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is my identity. And the defining moment was when I left. So I was only there for uh, about a half of a year mm. and my parents decided to get divorced and I was alone and I was a really far from home. And my mom and sister moved out of my childhood home to another state and everything just started falling apart for me, I think in that moment. And I also knew this is my life. This is my identity. This is my passion. I can't leave. If I leave, then I'm giving up my dream. And so as a 11 or 12 year old at this point, you can imagine it was a really like heart-wrenching decision. And I was so sad about both options, stay and stick it out or leave and go be with my family. And so I left. And I think looking back on that now, it was a regret for a very long time. Not to mention my whole town and the surrounding towns raised so much money for me to go. And so I felt like I let down a whole community when I left. And... um and so I continued to dance for many years after that. I ended up um, moving to Indiana to follow my my dance teachers from Vermont who had left to, to take over a school in Indiana. They moved back to Vermont. I came back to Vermont, kept the training going with them, graduated from high school. I, I went into college as a dance major. And then again, I had this moment where I was like, what am I doing? I let go of that dream when I left Toronto because that was the training I needed to really become a professional dancer. And in college, I, I ended up deciding to um, leave the leave the dance major behind. I continued to dance and I had a lot of dance credits, but it shifted for me really, you know, at that young age of 12, when I decided to leave that school, I was deciding not to be a dancer anymore. So. Wow. What an incredible story. And also what a tough, tough decision to be put on you as an 11 years old. And how your life and how your life change, you know, from from that moment. Um, wow. Do you still do you still feel? Because you said I felt regret for a long time. Do you still feel it, or or are you now okay with? Well, I mean, I I don't think I have a regret anymore. I have a little bit of a. Oh gosh, it's like. A little, I don't want to even call it a hole anymore because I think I've filled it, but 
there is a, there's like a slight sadness, Mm -hmm. but I am able to, you know, I, after college, I continued to have ballet in my life and I taught and I loved teaching. Um, and I, and I've now, you know, I'm a patron of it. I go and watch it and I move deeply and I love it. I love it so much, but I also know how hard that life is. And I also know that I have a, a very like, um, big drive, mm-hmm. um, to have an impact on the world in, in, in my small little way that I can. And not to say that dancers don't because they do. I think all arts can be wildly impactful, but, um, I also came from a, you know, a really poor town and a lot of financial struggles. And so for me, there is this drive to grow my career, to have an impact and to create that financial security and dancers do not have that. And you're also giving up everything. You know, you really, you know, you can have a family, you can have a social life, but it is such a small part of it. And so kind of felt like at some point I realized it's okay that I didn't do this because there's something, there's something big out there that I can do still. So it's, you know, a little sadness, but not regret, I would say. Yeah, that's incredible. I think society puts so much pressure on us where it's like, you have to do this all or nothing. And I love how you're like, I still took classes and enjoyed it and you can just do it because you love it you don't have to be this big superstar you can just do it here and there because you love it and do what else you're doing because it also means a lot to you yeah yeah well thank you for sharing that story that was uh like I said I always knew that about you but I didn't know the deeper story of that so let's jump 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 you are in San Francisco you come to San Francisco (laughs) you start at Alassian and uh Tell me how long you were there for how many years? It was just shy of six years, which in the tech world is like, you know, it's like dog years. So <laughs> one year feels like three, you know, it felt like I was there for a lifetime. And I was, you know, one of the more tenured people on my team when I left at six years. So, okay. Okay. So you, you go from Sonos, you follow your manager, you come to Atlassian, Atlassian. How does the culture feel there compared to Sonos? You know, it was what was so, um, it, what took me a while to connect to was the fact that at Sonos, there was this mission around music, right? That I totally connected with. And they had a physical, beautiful product of which I have many in my home, many thanks to that time. And with, with Atlassian, they have a beautiful mission, but no tangible product. So it was like even more tech than than Sonos. And it took me a, a while to feel a connection to the company because there wasn't a physical product. And I wasn't an engineer building, you know, these, mm-hmm. these software. And so um, I think I, in a way, felt like I didn't belong when I first arrived because I wasn't contributing to the product and I couldn't feel or touch the product. And I was in a new city and I didn't know anybody and I had a lot of imposter syndrome. And so I would say that when I first got to Atlassian, there was things that I did that contributed to my own sense of like not belonging. And then there was, there was aspects of just the nature of um, it being a software company versus having a physical product that made me feel disconnected. But then I'd say a year in when I got more comfortable with myself and my role and being in San Francisco and the imposter syndrome kind of crumbled a little bit. 
I realized there's this incredible community of people who care about their mission around team. And so I became obsessed with this notion of team. And I started feeling like I was part of the team. And they're an Australian-based company. And when I first went uh, to Australia, and I mentioned I love traveling, so I get to go to Australia and see like the heart and soul of the company and meet some of, you know, meet even meet the founders. Um, that shifted things for me. Mm-hmm. But it took me a while. The relationship was harder for me with the company at Atlassian to really feel like I belonged than Sonos. Um, but I stayed longer, right? So there's there's reasons for that too. But I would say, um, yeah, it just it had its tech feelings. Like there was some similarities in the fast-paced, high growth. Atlassian was 1,200 people when I joined. There were almost 10,000 people when I left in, oh, wow. in two years. Huge. So that's huge. And being in the people space, being in HR and getting to build some of the processes and the systems, you know, I got to contribute so much to the, to the growth of that company. So that felt amazing. Right. So it's, I wouldn't say it's apples and oranges to compare, but there were certainly, there were certainly some similarities in the tech fast paced growth and some differences, um, uh, as well. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I can understand like what you're saying, you know, in Sonos, how there was a product, right? And you saw the mission through music and plus you can relate personally to it. And I understand how not having something to hold physically, um, how that can be, you know, kind of not isolating. I don't know how I belong here. So then talk to us a little bit about your leaders in the company you follow the this woman from from Sonos, right? A woman. You follow her there as your manager, and then how was she your manager all through the end at Atlassian, or did that, or did, or did your manager change? Yeah. So actually, when I joined Atlassian, I reported into uh, another woman that reported into the woman I followed. So I wasn't reporting right into her anymore, which I was a little sad about, but it was, you know, slightly more mature company and they had more, um, you know, leadership layers at that point. So it made sense that um, I wouldn't report right into the woman who I was so inspired by, but I did get to work with her a lot, which was 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 wonderful and she could still you know be part of that experience for me um so i i and, and during the six years i had one two three managers across six years um and actually a year and a half into my time at atlassian the woman who i followed left oh. and i felt that again you know it's kind of this like even though i wasn't working with her as closely and i wasn't her direct employee i knew somewhere that I trusted her and she had my back. Mm -hmm. She left and somebody new came in from the outside, you know, it's reestablishing yourself and uh, your credibility again. And I was building things where I needed to work closely with the CHRO of Atlassian, in some cases, even the founders. So I had good access, but it's reestablishing who you are. Like this woman that I followed knew me she brought me in. Right. Um, and so this was, that was an experience that happened many times because then that CHRO, the second one left after six months. Mm-hmm. And then we had, um, another kind of head of people come in. So lots of change and lots of leadership change and a lot of female leadership actually within, within the people team there. Okay. 
Um, I know when we spoke with you uh, on, on the phone call we had before the podcast, you talk a lot about female leadership. And so, you know, now there is a big conversation, you know, women are kind of getting up and center, right? We finally, hopefully, getting what we deserve and the recognition and all of that. And there's all this talk, you know, women support women, which it should be, right? We should all support each other. But I know your experience was a little bit different where you maybe didn't feel that support, right? So if you can talk a little bit about that female leadership that you had and kind of some challenges that you had with some of them. Yeah. Oh, leadership matters so much. And also I would say your direct manager. And I know this now from a lot of research that I've done about workplace well-being, which we'll talk about later um, when we talk about Kiwi Collective, but your direct manager has such an influence on your experience and and when you're in kind of higher roles, right, um, that feels more powerful because it it feels like you this is your career and this person that you're reporting to has decision-making power over whether you get promoted, you get recognized, you get rewarded, et cetera, right? And when you're more and more senior, that's more and more um, visible and powerful to potentially amazing or detrimental to your career. And so um, I mentioned already, but I had three different managers and we had three different CHROs in, in less than six years. And so I had, I saw a lot of different types of leadership and even leaders that I worked with that were women, but I didn't report to, you know, there's a lot of collaboration and influencing that has to happen. So I saw a lot of different types of management and leadership. And I would say that overall, it felt more competitive <laughs> than, than supportive. And that shocked me. And it, and it, I wondered a few times, like, is it me? Am I doing something wrong? Why does it feel like I'm competing with other leaders and, or in some cases, the people I'm reporting into. Um, so it was really, it was jarring to me and really disappointing, I would say. Were you able to move up when you were there or was it, were you in the same position? Okay. I just want to clarify on that. Yeah, I, so I, um, I had, let's see how many, six years I had, um, I had maybe three promotions in six years and I had, four different roles, which again, a lot of change in six years, right? Mm -hmm, that's a lot. And then, I mean, I've worked in like different industries where there's women too. And did you feel pressure from above too? Because I'm sure you were an amazing manager, but is there pressure from above from these women? Um, do you think that was part of the cause or? You know, I think, I think a big part of what I saw was ego. And you have to also remember some, some of those six years was the pandemic and this shift to virtual work and remote work and hybrid work. And we were in the people space. So we were defining what that looked like for the whole company, which 
was around the world and, you know, 6,000 people or so at the time hiring a hundred people a month. And so, um, you know, we, there was, you know, there was some other elements that were in play, but I think ego, meaning, um, instead of what I saw a lot of is instead of as a leader, as a people manager and a leader, because I think leaders can be individual contributors as well, but as a, a people manager, my philosophy has been, you, you put, you let your team shine, you, you block the, the negative political, whatever, fill in the blank stuff. And you let your team excel and build and drive and do, and then you put them in the limelight and, and give them the credit. And that, that's because I'm more of a servant leader and there's all different types of leaders out there. That's just was, is kind of my approach. And so what I saw a lot of is more competition. And if you fail or you make a mistake, Jamie, then that's on me. And so pressure around ego from, you know, people just worrying about their own back. Right. And that tells you something. And again, I work in the people space, so I'm really fascinated by culture, but if you have a culture where people feel like they can't fail, then you have a culture that isn't trusting. You have a culture that is potentially not psychologically safe. You have a culture that's certainly not going to take risks or be innovative. Right. So, and that, I wouldn't say that that I saw that happening across the whole company. I did. And it can be isolated into teams or times. Um, um, and so, yeah, I think that there was some ego there for sure. And just people being worried about their own self, their own jobs. And, you know, the pandemic was certainly a part of that. We were all in very uncertain times. Mm. Jamie, I wonder, can you tell a specific story? Because it's very interesting to me, right? Where women are in this leadership position and you said there was a lot of competition. Do you have a specific story to where something happened or you felt like, because you said, why do I feel like I'm always competing? Is there a specific example that you can bring? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, at the time I, I carried a few different roles. I was responsible for designing the performance philosophy and strategy and review process for the company. And so thinking about like, you know, your annual performance review or whether or not you get feedback from your team and, and really doing some research around how to inspire performance and develop performance. So that was my space was really thinking about performance. How do you reduce bias in the process, et cetera. And um, it wasn't something I was trained in. It was something that I did a ton of research on and talked to just, uh, you know, probably hundreds of different leaders across, especially tech, because that was what I was in, um, to build my subject matter expertise. And um, I... I was also um, starting to <laughs> brave the stage again with public speaking, which was something that I really never wanted to do. Mm. But I, you know, was starting to starting to build a subject matter expertise about performance within Atlassian and outside of Atlassian, kind of within the the Bay Area. Um, and I, there was, there are a few different instances, but there's one that kind of that's coming to mind where. And it was, I would, you know, a couple layers beneath the one, you know, one layer beneath the CHRO. And there was some other 
female leaders that I needed to get by and in from about my approach and philosophies on the, the leadership team. And um, it was often that I would find my ideas were shot down, but then they were actually repositioned as somebody else's idea and passed. Gross. <laughs> and so it was like, wait, did I, wait, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I um, present that idea? And then I'm seeing it again. And not only that, but also when it's represented as someone else's, there's like congratulatory like reception. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, oh, I first thought, oh, that, that was a bad idea or that wasn't right. I got to go back to the drawing board. And then I see it again. And I'm like, wait a second. I think that was my idea. So maybe it wasn't so far off. So I started questioning myself. So yeah, that like <laughs> unfortunately middle school stuff. <laughs> Come yeah, on. right. No, it's like not even <laughs> high school. Oh my god. Um, yeah. Did you see different approach with men in a leadership position? Did you see their interaction a little bit different? Because you know. We know men are competitive as well, but I feel like that there is a difference between women competing and men competing, right? Because I feel like, and and correct me or, or, or tell me if you agree with that for us, you know, because women's rights has been shut down for a long time. And it's even now, you know, we are in a 21st century and still, you know, when you look across the board, right? Uh, there's not a lot of like female CEOs, right? When you look across the, the all this big organization, you know, banks, tech, and all of that. But I wonder if you saw difference in within men versus women, and how was that approach? You know, I would a couple things. So, working within the people space at Atlassian, actually, the leadership team when I joined, I'm trying to remember. Um, the people leadership when I joined was almost entirely women. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that was exciting because here you see a bunch of representation, right. Um, with, with, you know, influence and, and decision-making rights. Um, and I think that was where my disappointment was because I was thinking like, oh, I have so many possible mentors to learn from. Cause I was really still new to HR when I got to Atlassian, I'd only had a few years inside of HR, inside of a tech company at Sonos. So I was still kind of new to this thing. Um, so I didn't see as much of the, I didn't see a, a contrast because there wasn't as many um, uh, men in the leadership roles. And there were a couple men that were that actually, um, one of which used to work at Sonos too. So I had a nice rapport and there was even some mentorship. So I didn't see that as much. Um, but I will say, which is, which is interesting about tech, um, and anybody who works in tech will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, there is, um, there are a lot of engineers, of course, that's the, the primary need in a tech company is to be able to build products is engineering. And that is still very much predominantly men. And engineering is, um, you know, it's, it's its own language. And engineers are really trained to find the bugs before anyone else finds them. So they're they're in the details. They're looking for any flaws in anything. 
before it becomes an issue and your Sonos can't play, for example. And so being in a, in a, in a very heavy engineering organization and, and therefore also at this point in time, um, predominantly male or, um, organization, what I did find is this very um, combative, tough feedback um, culture. And I found myself shifting and having to be in defense mode a lot. So, you know, let's say I publish something, a blog within the company about some program that I have developed from a people standpoint, and there would be hundreds of comments from from people all over the organization because we're a very open company, which is incredible, um, with all of their feedback about everything that was right and wrong. And you would go into this defense mode. And so it wasn't competition, but it's a really fascinating part of tech where you are very open, you're very honest, but maybe you don't have some of the EQ that we would want to see with that. And you're therefore in this defense mode of like defending what you've done and defending the mistakes or defending the flaws, or at least I felt very defensive. Um, it was very, it was a culture shock to me to see some of that. Um, but yeah, the competition less so, um, but by nature of being in that kind of culture, you know, you have to get more defensive and, and, and I would say even aggressive. Like I felt like I had to get aggressive and I wasn't in my nature to get aggressive when I was talking or proving a point or defending my decision. You know, it was very, could we feel like argumentative even at times? Mm -hmm. Oh gosh. So you talk a lot about you know, that it matters so much who your direct manager, who your leader is. And I also remember something you said on the call, a lot depends on how you work. Mm. So can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, and if I remember correctly, we were talking about burnout too. Um, so I might peel back some of those layers as I share there is now really some incredible research that has been done by a lot of different organizations, but one that I, I really um, follow is Gallup, and they've been studying workplaces for as, as long as any company has. And during the pandemic, there was a lot of great work done to understand well-being, um, which is, I think, one of the silver linings that the pandemic brought into the workplace was more of a care and attention towards employee well-being. And what they found is that there are five key factors that drive our overall well-being as humans. And the number one that determines whether we thrive is your career. And your career is determined in many ways, your experience, your work, your career by your manager. And so now there is a ton of research that's behind kind of my, you know, my experience, my personal experience has been true as well. And how many of us have left a company because of our boss and how many of us have joined because of our boss? I mean, I did, I, I followed somebody, you know, up the California coast. Um, and I also ultimately, you know, left, have left jobs and, and including Atlassian because of lack of alignment of managers. Um, and, when I, when I mentioned um, it also matters how you work, I think that gets it into kind of the conversation around burnout, which is, you know, we can say all day long inside of an organization and as leaders, as people managers, as owners, that employees matter and that their well-being matters. But if you're 
um, sending messages at midnight or six in the morning asking for things without any caveat of like, you know, address this when you're back online. And there's this um, maybe faux urgency culture. Um, that's one of those examples of how you work matters. If you don't have kind of set expectations about when people are working and you're sending messages as a leader asking for something, then all of a sudden, now that we, so many of us anyway, depending on what industry you're in, um, have our cell phones, we have our laptops at home, we can access our messengers and our Slack and we see it at dinner and we feel like we need to reply. Um, that builds up over time and can totally contribute to burnout, exhaustion, fatigue. Um, and so that's just a little example. There's a lot of different ways, like how you work, like how you are interacting with each other. Um, whether you're making time to connect as human beings and not just work mm. is kind of how you work matters. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, okay, I, wanted, I wanted to touch on something you said, how you connect as people. I remember you said that when people go out in California, all they do is talk about work. But then when you went, if I remember correctly, you went to New York, right? Because there was there was the office of Atlassian there, right? And mm -hmm. you said we went out and I was very surprised how people don't talk about work when they go out. So why do you think there's such a different culture between East and West Coast? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> being from the East Coast myself and having had many years in on the West Coast, I don't, I don't even know if I have the the answer there entirely. But I'll say in my experience, um, you know, being in California, especially in tech, I think it's a, it's I think it's a tech thing first mm -hmm. of all. I've worked in other industries, not all of them, but I've worked in other industries, and I really think it's a tech thing where you get all consumed, right? You really your work is your life and you're probably working for a company that is either in startup mode, that's building and ramping really fast and you're hoping to get acquired. And so there's excitement there and, and you just get absorbed in, or you're working for, you know, a company that has customers around the world. And so there's kind of this sense that you need to always be on whatever it might be. There is something within tech that, um, that contributes to, to some of that generally. And I think in California and in San Francisco in particular, you're there's like, that's the industry, like that's the main industry. So every other building is a tech office. It's a startup or it's a, you know, hundred thousand organ, you know, person organization, but it's everywhere. Mm. And so I think you just kind of get lost in work and, and people come, they work crazy hours, they get acquired, they make money, they cash in their stock and then they move on and they do it all over again. And it be becomes kind of a, I don't know, it's, it can become like addicting almost, right? Cause there's, especially if you're motivated by money, um, there's opportunities of really good, like, really, like wealth in, in tech in New York. I think that that's very true, but you know, there's a lot of other industries and I would say it wasn't a tech hub. There is a lot of tech now. And, and as you mentioned, we had an office there but there's a lot of finance too. And there's a lot of other industries. And so maybe it's just the nature of um, the mix of industry that it's not as typical to go out after work. And I'm not saying people don't go out and, and talk, but it was just an interesting, to your point, experience that when I was in New York, we went out after work as friends and colleagues, and we talked about our next vacation and we talked about our families. And in San Francisco, it was like, 
the work never ended. We, we just kept talking about it until we went to bed and then we did it all over again. So yeah. different, different work culture. Like it's, it's interesting, but you know, for me as an immigrant, not being from here, I feel like as an Americans, like work define us and I'm an American now too. Um, so you know, everything is around work. Work almost, it's like, it's who, it's not what I do, it's who I am for so many people. Um, and I know you've traveled around the world. So how would you say, like, when you went to Europe and um, you were in Australia and New Zealand, is that right? Both of those, Australia and New Zealand? Just Australia. Just um, Australia. But I also I had to go to India, which was incredible. We had an office there. Um, and I didn't visit the offices in Amsterdam, but it, there were offices, both, both Sonos and Atlassian had offices in Amsterdam. So I had some experience there. Mm -hmm. um, and what the difference in work culture did you see in other countries versus in the United States? How do people take their job, their career? I mean, again, we're talking about tech. So there's this kind of thread of, even in other countries, what I what I witnessed is you still saw some of that tech coming through, meaning, you know, sometimes working around the clock or, you know, continuing the conversation after hours about work. But I'll give you a very um, specific example around vacations. At Atlassian, they offered unlimited vacations in the U.S. And then there were you know, locations around the world, including Australia. And different countries have different um, parameters and and rules around vacations and leaves and things like that. So, of course, they abide by all of those. And in Australia, in, in particular, they didn't have unlimited vacation, but they had a set number of days, but it was very generous. And while I, living in the U.S., had unlimited vacation days, I felt a sense of guilt and um, shame even asking for a week off. But in Australia... When they where they don't didn't have unlimited vacation, they would easily take their month off at a time with with celebration, with excitement, with with no regrets whatsoever. And we worked at the same company, and so it it showed me right then and there. And that's been my experience traveling personally as well. That and I totally agree with you. Um, in the U.S., we generally. Um, make work our life and our, in some cases, our purpose, it's our passion. Um, it replaces, you know, religion for some people, you know, where you find greater purpose in, in, in religion, in tech world. And in, in the U S in particular, your, your work can sometimes fulfill that space for better and worse, mm -hmm. I think. So, you know, it's an interesting thing around, you know, vacations. And that's, I think that's true in agnostic of industry, but, but it was just one of those things where I remember saying, you know, I'm taking two weeks off. I took my first two weeks off. Um, and I was telling a, a colleague in Australia and they're like, why aren't you taking a month, two weeks? You, you're not going to do anything in two weeks. You're not going to relax in two weeks. And I'm like, oh, I could never take more than two weeks. I mean, I felt like couldn't believe I was taking two weeks off. Right. So yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And I know I'm, I know I'm not alone in that, um, at all, but it's That's, yeah, very different. It's so fascinating because the company I worked at, we had flexible time off. I think it's the same thing where we could take off as much time as we wanted. And I was so excited. Um, and then we looked into it and they're like, we do this because 
most people won't take as much time off because it's not required. You don't have to take a month off. Um, Mm -hmm. And then even when it was time off, we were still working. You know, I was, I had to be available 24 seven because if I wasn't working, who was doing the job. So it's also interesting how you have to request you know, so I, I read it somewhere how you, you, the company says you're entitled to this time off, right? And then you have to request and they can say, no, you know, they, they can deny the time off. You know what I mean? So, yeah, but also like here, you know, your, your job is your insurance is all of your benefits is everything here. So I understand now how, you know, why why here in america people like oh my careers my everything to where you know you can go up and up in the company you can have that corner office you can have all the money in the world but it does come with a price tag right to where is to me is like okay why do you back over backwards for somebody to be making money for the shareholders for all of this where you don't see your family ever why what's the point in money if you, you know, then it leads to divorces because you don't ever see your loved ones, you know, your relationship with your children starting to suffer because you're always at work. Like, I remember working for Wells Fargo when I was working in the mortgage. It was the most horrible time, you know, the most horrible time. And like, it affected me to the point that I thought I was going to have a heart attack to where I had to go on anxiety medication and all of that. And Wells Fargo, and I don't care, you know, I mean, they're all exposed anyway, but like, you know, they say people are competitive advantage. Screw you with, with that shit. You can, like, you're right. You can say all you want. We care so much. The well-being, you know what I mean? It's like I remember they used to have this, like, you know, when we were, because I was also working during pandemic, and they would have this, like, yoga, you know, for, like, you can do, you know, online, you put your headphones. But then it's like, then everybody would interrupt your fucking yoga because they needed you, you know what I mean? And you're like, I am trying to relax. And I just, I don't understand when are we all going to realize that the money is not worth your health? And I am sure, you know, intact, like you mentioned, you know, you people move because you can make a ton of money, right? But then, but then it leads to the health problem. So I was wondering, like, if you can tell us, like, what lead to the burnout for you? You already mentioned a few things, you know, getting email late at night and all of that. But what was that last straw, I guess, the, the defining moment as well to where, like, I can't do this anymore? Or, like, the moments leading up to it, but I'm, like, curious, too. Yeah. Oh, oh you know, hindsight, right? <laughs> you exactly. can look back. Oh. And I have, it's almost a year since I left. Wow. I left. Um, which is, which has been, I've started, I've been beginning my reflection on a year a year outside of tech. So um, this is good timing. But I, you know, maybe I could have seen it coming. <laughs> and there is now, you know, all sorts of workshops out there. And even companies offer like burnout workshops, be resilient, reduce burnout, right? And I'm exploring some of that with the work that I'm doing now. But you said something that I want to touch on quickly, which is that's amazing that you're offered yoga at work, right? But if you can't take the time and it's not honored or prioritized or protected by your manager, your team, the company, the work, 
that's one of those how you work things, right? If you if the company offers it, but you can't participate in it, or you can't focus on it, and it could mean yoga, or it could mean, you know, the mental health workshops that were on my calendar that I probably needed so much before I burnt out, but I had three other meetings on top of it hmm. that I had to be on. And how was I supposed to be on three meetings? It didn't work, but yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. So it is, it is, I think it comes from a really good place that companies are offering things now and, and talking about, um, mental well-being, financial well-being, physical well-being, you know, there's, you know, tons of benefits that didn't exist many years ago and even before the pandemic, but if people can't, um, prioritize those over some of the work, like something has to fall off, right? If you're going to spend, an hour in a yoga class instead of an hour in a meeting, that's a trade-off. And so is it lip service or is that time really sacred and protected for the employee? So that's, and that is, you know, talking about my experience and what led to my burnout. I think it's definitely multifaceted. I um, had finally made it to a leadership role that I had been working for for many years, trying to prove myself again and again, and actually really pushing for that promotion, which is a whole nother story. And especially as a woman, um, but I finally had this leadership role. And again, I found myself a little bit imposter syndrome, uncomfortable, but it meant, you know what? And somebody told me this a while ago, you want to be in a role where you are 80% uncomfortable and 20% confident. That's when you know that you're in growth mode, you're being challenged, but not too much so, right? So I was definitely in that 80-20. And I had um, a team of, I think about 15 people, 12, 12 people, 15 people, anyway. And they were all over the world. And I was sitting and working remotely in my little home in Vermont. And I had employees in Europe, in the Philippines, in Australia, in India, on the East Coast, middle of the country on the west coast and a lot of those employees were newer to the company and rightfully so um needed more guidance more time more attention and i've already mentioned and admitted i'm a servant leader and so i prioritized time with each of those those team members and there was a lot of change happening i was trying to keep the team stable and so i was in every time zone i was I was had 7 a.m calls and i had 9 and 10 p.m calls and i was also on a leadership team and they were you know, across the world as well. So some of the burnout for me was um, this experiment that we're doing around remote work and hybrid work. And at lasting leaned in early and said, we're going to be remote first, which is awesome. Um, and you can work from wherever you want, but it does mean that you have to be really thoughtful about building your teams. Because if you have a leader who has team members around the world, how can that leader be in every time zone? Or how can that people manager be in every time zone? And so in some ways I did it to myself because I really wanted to be present and be um, supportive of my team. So I'd be on calls on every time zone, <laughs> you know, I couldn't get my whole team together. So sometimes I'd have two different team meetings instead of one. Um, oh and the nature of the work was again, like this very fast pace, this sometimes this false sense of urgency and some pressure coming from, you know, the top we're, reimagining the ways of working as a remote first company. We got to be part of that, which is so cool. Um, I was building a manager uh, development program alongside my team, which was exciting because we were getting to really touch and help. Hopefully people managers were struggling to lead in this new hybrid remote setting. Um, so we were doing really fascinating, interesting work, but it is very hard to work in all different time zones and be on all the time. 
And also um, this sense of urgency, like this isn't heart surgery, right? No one's going to die if we don't answer that last message or if we push something out by a day. Mm. But there's this sense, especially in tech, of just constant fast paced and urgency. And sometimes, you know, that um, can really affect right? Somebody, if they're, if they're working with a lot of pressure and sense of urgency, everything's on fire. Everything can't be on fire. Agree. Because you have to be in one place at one time and addressing one issue, right? So that was some of it. And then if you think about if I'm on calls on in front of my screen from sometimes 7am to 9pm at night, I'm not getting up. I'm not moving my body. My eyes are glued to the screen anyone gets migraines like I do, it's not great to be on a screen all of the time. Um, and we were very much video forward. So it's not, you know, I'm, I'm being present on a video. So that's, you know, that's different than if you're kind of just laying back on your phone, maybe trying to stretch or doing something multitasking. Um, and I'm barely drinking enough water because I don't have time to go to the bathroom <laughs> and, and I'm shoveling my mouth off screen while I'm on calls. And so my body, as I now know, was in this constant fight and flight state. And when your body is in fight and flight, you cannot be in rest and digest. Our bodies only do one or the other. And so while I'm eating, when I'm shoveling food in, in the middle of a meeting, my body is in fight and flight. It cannot digest that food. So I wasn't even getting the nutrients I needed from the food I was eating. And so you start looking at all the things we need in order to be well. I wasn't doing them. And I also couldn't do them if I wanted to be successful in my job. And so that escalated. It was, you know, I did it for, um, for, you know, through the pandemic, especially there was some extra, you know, stress that we all experienced that added to some of this, but I got to a point where I was chronically fatigued. I, um, I had had a lot of gut health issues and they were, all of those symptoms were just, you know, terrible. They were heightened and worse than they had ever been. Um, and I was just kind of like, I got to carry this. I got to do this. I got to keep going day by day. And I had nothing left to give. And I thankfully didn't, I don't have a family, um, that was relying on, relying on me, like kids at home. I would have had nothing to give them. I had nothing to give my partner, my sister, my, my, my family. Um, and I certainly had nothing to give myself. I just wanted to sleep <laughs> you know, when I, the weekend. So but I loved my work and I cared about it deeply and it was my identity. So it wasn't like it was miserable, but I didn't realize that all of these things I was doing again and again and again over time was leading to what ended up being all of a sudden a thyroid issue, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth and IBS, um, adrenal fatigue. And I didn't know, thankfully I did have a manager that said, you know what? I think you need to take some time off. You need to go on a leave. And I kind of went kicking and screaming and again, a little bit shamed and, and guilt ridden thinking like, what? there's nothing, I, I, I'm, I'm fine enough. Like leaves are for somebody who's, you know, broken their leg or, ha you know, has something horrible like cancer, not for somebody who just seems tired, right? I was really hard on myself. And long story short, I did take a leave. And I, as soon as I closed my laptop on that last day, I think my whole body just gave out and I became so ill because all of a sudden I didn't have to be late anymore. Um, yeah, it was, what a ride. <laughs> wow. So many just thoughts, like 
first of all, how were you like on all of the time zones? Because I'm thinking you just on the computer all night, but you weren't. But till 10, from 7 till 10, this is really um, just horrendous, you know? Um, and like how this company and like as you telling this to me, I'm like, every time you say something, I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, because I am sure that, you know, there's so many people right now who saying I love my job. I love my job. I have to carry through. But I think two things can be true. I know you were great at your job. I know you loved it. You have the love for people and and, and doing all these things. But another thing is also I'm, I, I can't like, you know, you said I can't give anything to myself. And I think that's the most important because we always say like, you know, the family, the partner, all of that, of course, they're important. Right. But if you have nothing to give to yourself, then there is nothing left for anybody else. You know, we have to take care of ourselves. Um, so yes. you went on a leave. How long were you on a leave? I originally um, requested two months after consulting with my doctor about what I thought I might need in order to kind of heal, fill my cup back up, come back. Um, but I ended up taking three months in total for the leave. Did like a specific incident happen where your manager was like, I think you need to take a break or were they just kind of noticing over time? You know, I, it was probably a yes. And I, I am trying to remember if I, I might've said like, I really need to take, it might've been a vacation. Mm -hmm. Like I really need time because I am just, um, I am exhausted and I'm starting to not like think as sharply and as quickly. And, um, it was when I started feeling like I couldn't show up for my team. Um, and, and that was certainly something I started noticing, like I, I was really struggling and there were sometimes, you know, I had 4.30 a.m. call, I remember a couple days, um, you know, black outside in the morning and it was same at night. So, um, yeah, it was, it was too much. And like something in me knew, like, I can't keep doing this. And I'm, it's starting to affect my ability to show up well. And I think my, my boss recognized it in me as well. Um, and so great, you know, thankfully, you know, she was really supportive of that and encouraged believe I thought I was just going to need to take like, um, you know, an unpaid sabbatical or something. I was just like, I just, I knew I couldn't do it much more, at least not at the level of performance I was holding myself to and was expected to deliver at. So, um, yeah, I think it was a combo of me recognizing it, her recognizing it. And thankfully her suggesting, you know, take a leave. That's what these are for. And that was maybe a defining moment of, you know, I cared deeply about um, my, my health, but just thinking like I didn't, I was charging my cell phone at night while I was sleeping, but I wasn't recharging my, my mental or my emotional. I didn't have the time. There was no time to do that. And so just thinking about taking a, a, a medical leave when you don't have maybe as much of a physical presence of an ailment or an issue, but doing it for your mind. And in my case, a little bit, my spirit and my heart, you know, it felt like a failure to me at first. And now I realize, you know, how important it was. And it, it was then, you know, my mental health, my physical, my, had a, such a direct impact on my physical health. And we now know tons of research about brain gut access. And my gut was just um, wrecked, you know, really causing so much, so many issues for me. And no wonder, no wonder. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you took the leave and then you came back. Did you feel recharged, refreshed, and everything was great again? Oh, I wish <laughs> I could say I did. <laughs> I did feel something though. So another defining moment for me happened on this leave. Probably many actually. But when I was on the leave and started to explore what is wrong with my body? Why do I feel so exhausted? Why is my stomach in such a bad place? Um, I went to a variety of different doctors, gastroenterologists. I had every lab run, every test we could think of to try to figure out what was at the root of some of my symptoms. Um, We did identify that I had um, uh, a like a thyroid issue. And it took a while to uncover some of the gut health things, but I still felt like this isn't like, there's something else here. And I wasn't getting the care that I felt I needed. Like somebody was telling me there's more to the story here. And I had read a book before the leave about uh, well-being, and specifically written by a company called the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. I remember that when I was on my leave and I think I might've even got a marketing email from them or something saying like health coaching program is starting like a couple days after my leave started. And it, the description was talking all about how you could start healing yourself. And so many people did. And I don't know something in me said, you have to do this. You have to do this. So I enrolled in, um, it was a year long program, but of course I know I myself decided to do the accelerated version, which is cramming a year into six months. I'm like, well, I have a three month leave or two month leave. I thought I can get some of that done (laughs) and I'll somehow figure out how to do it while I go back to work too. So again, we sometimes contribute to our burnout. Um, I am guilty of that. So I enrolled and I started understanding things about my well-being and my health. And I started um, something ignited in me and I realized, wow, I was compromising everything about my health for my career. And yet our career is such an important part of our overall well-being. So it was this fascinating um, reflection that I was having. So when I went back to work and I was in the midst of this health coaching program, there was this new kind of small, quiet voice that was getting louder and louder every day that I needed to do something with this. And I started thinking, okay, how could I incorporate it in the work I do? I'm in leadership development. Maybe there's ways to pull this well-being through, right? And um, when I went back, I had a new manager and we just certainly didn't align at all. And I knew immediately, get diving back into the work, my symptoms started to get worse again. I'm still in the health coaching program. I'm starting to do things differently and trying to prioritize the things, but my symptoms are getting worse. And then when I had that real kind of lack of alignment um, in leadership styles with my new manager, I just knew this is it. I, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot do it. And the golden handcuffs, as we call it, especially in tech mm. of the financial stability and the potential for wealth as the stock was doing, doing well, no longer mattered. Like it was what I needed to walk away from that. I love it. That's amazing. I love it that you came to the conclusion that money, because, you know, 
Of course, money is important. Money can buy us a lot of things. Money can buy us vacation, good homes, cars, all these things. And money is important, but money is not you. We cannot prioritize money versus our health because if we keep going in the pace we are going, like it's going to be kind of a very quick road to the other side, you know? So I'm happy that that realization came for you. And you know, that manager that you didn't align with, he or she did you a favor, right? Because she, was that a she or a he? It was another she. It was another she. She was that, you know, contributed to your defining moment of, you know, kind of pushing you to to take that step, you know, to take that step to what now is known as Kiwi Collective. That's right. It, it almost made it too easy. <laughs> it was not easy, but it did. But it was also the, I had three months that I was just so focused on healing and my health. And when I realized, and this was the impetus for Kiwi Collective and the health coaching practice I have now, which is we and being in people, in the people space, being in leadership development, I felt like I had to choose between my health or my career and my career and money to some degree, but my career. And I was just thinking like, that is, that should not be the case. That should not be the case. And there were certainly things that I did that contributed to my own burnout, but then there were expectations and ways of working that also contributed to it as well. Right. And so when I, when I left almost a year ago, I didn't still fully know what I was going to build, but I knew that I wanted to do something that helped others as I was on my healing journey individually, um, stand up for their own well-being, and hence the health coaching practice. And I knew that wasn't enough because even if you're somebody who cares deeply about yourself and prioritizes yourself and has the self-care routine and lock step, um, I think you can absolutely burn out if the culture that you work within is toxic at worst and is, um, doesn't prioritize well-being truly at, at best. And so I wanted to also do something in the, in the HR people space that could get after that. And so Kiwi Collective was born out of that desire to shift the ways that culture within companies um, prioritizes and designs well-being. Mm -hmm. So now with your Kiwi Collective, um, do you work just with organization or do you work like can somebody come to you as an individual not having a business or a company can you be that well-being coach to just one person yes and that's what I love that's what I'm right now I'm splitting my time kind of 50 50 and we'll see I'm sure there'll be different seasons that 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 goes up and down but I love working one-to-one -one with people and so I am now a health coach through through IIN and and love working with people that need all sorts of support across their well-being really even if it's like i don't know but i think i too am you know a little fatigued or i'm not sure if i'm burnt out let's let's define a wellness vision for you and let's you know really bring that to life within 
the context of your family, your career, and what matters to you. So I love working with individuals. And, and then I also uh, work with companies on, you know, all things HR and talent, but especially thinking about how design to design people programs in a way that promotes and, and supports well-being and really helps sustain well-being and reduces burnout, increases resilience, those buzzwords that we hear about, mm-hmm. but really, you know, in the small moments and the large moments that matter within companies. Okay. And so do you see now working with companies and and different organization, do you see that shift? Do you see the change that this company really do care and prioritize well-being? Or is it just still a buzzwords and kind of like, oh, come work for us. We prioritize well-being. You know, we have all this and then the other. Is it, is it really changing or is, or is it still in the same kind of space which you left off at your previous company? Your thoughts you know, on that? Yeah, I think, I think that things have shifted, right? But this is a massive, this is a massive behavior, cultural and organizational shift to even be having a conversation about workplace well-being, right? To even be making books like this with from Gallup all about well-being at work to have the research now the evidence that this stuff matters like even that we have that that now is a big shift and that takes time to implement inside of organizations right it takes you know we at think about it as an individual level you know maybe um you know you're a smoker and you know that smoking potentially is eventually going to kill you but you have a really hard time changing that behavior right or maybe it's you were recently diagnosed with diabetes and your doctor says you have to lose weight and you know what you need to be doing, but you're not doing it right. Behavior change is really hard mm. at the individual level. Then think about behavior change at an organizational level. You're talking about hundreds and thousands of people shifting and changing their ways of working, what they prioritize, their ways of decision-making that takes time. So I think um, even just being able to talk about well-being at work is the beginning. It isn't enough, but it is the beginning. I don't know that, you know, we don't have it all figured out, even within HR and with all the research that exists about how to do that well. And it really depends on the company and the culture of the company and the mission and values. You want to do it with in alignment, right? And tech is is one industry, but there's other industries that operate and work differently. So you have to really figure out what works for that company in that moment in time. Um, while also, you know, you still have to be profitable, right? You still need to make money people still need to work, but where's the balance. Um, so I think that companies are in like, we're at the beginning of that conversation. Um, and some companies, you know, are, are questioning whether, you know, why, why should I, why should I be caring about somebody's well-being? That's their personal life. Like at, at the, at the ugliest, I think there's companies there, mm-hmm. um, laggards when we talk about change. Right. But there are early adopters and there are companies that are really trying to do the right thing, but they're still very much figuring out what that means and what the return is on that. You know, you can offer, you had yoga, right? That sounds amazing. But if you couldn't use it, then that return, like that wasn't helping your well being. So it's companies can invest in this stuff, but how do you implement it in a way that people can actually access it? 
and still get their work done, right? So it's, I think we're at the beginning of the journey still. And what are your thoughts on, I was thinking about this question yesterday. Okay, so the conversation is happening, right? And I think COVID shifted workplace tremendously, going from going to the office and then going remote, going hybrid, all of those things. So the conversation is happening and companies seeing that you can no longer treat your people that work for you and bring you profit as, you know, your work slaves. I don't know what the other word because you're exploiting people so much. So the conversation is starting to happen. What do you think needs to happen to where we go from the conversation to the actual work that needs to be done? I think, I mean, it's a complicated, I, I think it's, it's multifaceted and layered and, and complicated and there's no magic bullet, right? Or we, at least some companies would be doing it already. Mm-hmm. And I think some companies are doing it much better than others for sure. Um, I think a couple thoughts come top to mind. One is everyone listening to this is an individual with a voice and you know yourself better than anybody else. And you have to be responsible and accountable to yourself and your health. And you have to decide how and what to prioritize, right? So if you have a culture or a company of 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people, and they are self-aware enough about, hey, I'm heading towards burnout, and they're gonna, and they speak up about that or they put the right practices in place, that is one way in which we can all have agency over some of this. Now you could be in a company that doesn't prioritize that or that, you know, gives you a low performance review because you took a leave, which should never happen, by the way, <laughs> in some cases illegal. Oh, God. You have to get at, 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 at a culture level. And I think like a lot of other big org change things, it is a leadership discussion and a top down role modeling. So if you are the founder or CEO of an organization and you role model what it means to prioritize self-care and not to just say it, whether that is taking a healthy vacation regularly or not working after certain hours or, you know, having time blocks on your calendar for yoga or, you know, meeting with yourself to just relax and eat your lunch that models for a company that says to everybody that signals that's okay here right so that's a really small shift that leaders can make and you don't have to be the ceo if you you are a leader yourself you're a people manager and you role model that it's going to tell other people that it's okay so that those are just really small ways but then there's you know kind of designs itself like strategies and um ways of implementing programs like what if you're a company that in your performance review that determines people's ability to be promoted or receive a bonus, there is an aspect of that review that's people, that is it about um, the person balancing their well-being and taking their vacation. And now I'm not saying it should be baked into performance reviews, but what if you recognized and celebrated and even rewarded people for living a more balanced uh, work and everything else <laughs> life that's that's just a, a you know one example like there you have to really embed it into the dna of a company and there are certainly strategies that you can use to do that um, 
Well, Jamie, yeah. what are you talking about balanced life? Who's going to make money for the company? I mean, if people are going to take a vacation, where's the money going to come from? Exactly. And, you know, I have to say, I think I mentioned this to you before. I really decided I don't like the phrase work-life balance. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing. And, I, and I'm, I'm one of the people who care deeply about my career. And it has been an identity for me before. And I'm trying to shift that. I don't know that for me, that's the most healthy thing, but I, um, I am career driven and I've mentioned before that our careers are a big part of our overall, our overall well-being. And so it shouldn't be about work-life balance, balance work is part of our life. And for some people, it's a really important part and that's okay. Right. If it's, if it's a healthy, it's a healthy workload, um, and you're able to, to also care for yourself and the other things that you need. So yeah, the work-life balance thing, I'm, I'm trying to shift that language because, you know, work is a really important part of many of our lives. That's awesome. I was going to ask, so it's so important to have this balance and not work-life balance, but, um, there's so many, I feel like there's a lot of new companies going four days a week or doing like 30 hours instead of 40 hours. Is that something that you're pushing for? I don't know if you've worked with companies where you've noticed a difference with productivity and, you know, hours and that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, companies are experimenting with all sorts of things, which is, you know, back to your other question, uh, a signal that things are starting to shift. And I think experimenting with you know, a, a, a modified work schedule or a flexible work schedule is a, is a great place to start. And I'm a big proponent of experimentation because you can certainly, you know, like in a lab, like you can, maybe you have a couple teams try an alternative work schedule, or maybe you go the whole company, but you do it for, let's do it for three months and measure it, figure out ways to measure if it's working and not just employees like it, but are employees actually feeling a difference in their, um, you know, burned out tendencies or, um, you know, performance even. Right. So I think it's a great, it's a great thing to explore. It's not going to work for every company, depending on who your customer is and where you're located around the world. But there are a lot of different things that companies are and can experiment with like a, a modified work schedule or a four day week. You know, it's interesting because, um, I, I think I also seen where uh, companies do do that, but I wonder if they say, okay, we work 30 hours a week, but then they cram all the work. So then you feel even like more burnt out because you has less time and, uh, you know, and, and the same type of work, the same amount of work. But I think I, I, I do agree with you that you don't know if something works or not until you try it, until you try and see, do we still do do people like it? Do we still make money? Are people still productive? Are people more happier? You know what I mean? I was wondering what, because we, I know you do, you said you work like half and half with individuals and companies. So companies overall, I think I have an idea what that come to you for, but as individual, what do people just as individual come to you for? Yeah, I, um, well, a variety of things. And Right now, because I'm in the earlier stages of my health coaching practice, I'm really excited to work with people that have varying degrees of need and and or maybe health concerns that have surfaced for them that they're trying to address. Um, but because I have 
the beginning of an expertise in gut health, and I've continued education around gut health in particular. Uh, I see people often get referred to me because of gut health, but then like so many things, and if anyone goes to therapy, this will probably resonate, that you you go in thinking it's a gut health issue, but maybe it's actually a really unhealthy relationship causing that, right? Mm. So when we think about our holistic health, which is what I focus on supporting people with, um, it's all connected. All of our systems within our bodies are connected and the different aspects, the different dimensions of our life and our well-being are connected. So, you know, you could be eating the most amazing foods and you're in a really unhealthy relationship and you're going to have gut issues or you're going to have fatigue or, you know, any sort of stress can cause physical issues. So anyway, people do come to me for, for gut health. Um, but also people come just for, Hey, I I'm trying to live a healthier, happier life. And I don't know where to begin. And like any, you know, any kind of coaching modality, it's a lot of me holding space for those people and helping them identify their patterns, identify what is really important to them. Mm-hmm. And of course, providing support and resources and tools. Um, but it's really kind of trusting that we all really know what we need and we need to listen to that more and just being that accountability and um, space holder for them in those moments. Yeah. Is there like a specific issue you notice people come to you? I know before you talked about how sometimes we do things to cause our own burnout. Is there like a few specific things or maybe one specific thing that you have like noticed a trend of people doing to cause our own burnout that we can stop doing? Oh gosh. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And I wish I had had some of this, um, when I was in the midst and the throes of it. So I mentioned, I did this and I, because I, you know, a lot of my network is in the tech space. I have seen a lot of people who are still sitting in front of a computer on meetings back to back all day long, right. Doing some of the things I was doing. And I would say, if you could do one thing differently, if you are somebody who is especially in front of a computer back to back, or just somebody who has been um, multitasking while they're eating, stop doing that. Because as I mentioned, if you are in the midst of writing an email or, you know, you're on your phone trying to catch up on the latest X, Y, and Z, I don't know, news feed or social media feed, and your body is in this kind of fast pace, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative um, stressful environment for your body to be more in a fight flight mode of like needing to reply, needing to read, needing to cram it in your body cannot digest your food. And so those are not completely wasted calories, but you are not going to be able to really process your food. You're also probably not going to be chewing well because you're not focused on it. And when we don't chew our food and we don't break it down, it, it gets through our digestive tract. And again, we're not reaping the benefit. It cannot break it down in the lower parts of the digestion enough to really grab the nutrients and do all the important things it does. So chew your food and eat your food with no distractions. And I know that's really hard. I didn't have the time, I didn't think, but I also didn't realize how important it was. Maybe I would have prioritized it differently. And maybe you only have 15 minutes or 10 minutes to eat, but close the screen, close the phone. I don't know, light a candle, put on some music that helps you calm down. I've been doing this new practice recently and it comes from kind of Ayurvedic tradition, 
but I've been, even if you just have a moment, right, I've been sitting with my plate and I just kind of hold the plate or the bowl and I take a moment in my own silence and I just think about how much gratitude I have for every person that if touched the food that ended up on my plate, you know, think about all the ingredients that are likely in, on one of your plates and how many people and farmers and truck drivers and, you know, grocery store staff made it possible for that food to be there. And I just fill myself up with gratitude. And then I like send a wish to my body that it accepts the food and, and really makes me feel good and well and healthy. And so I just, it's like, now it's so ingrained, my little talk track, it's like 10 seconds. And that just gets my body into a state of rest. And then I eat and I try to chew my food as much as I can. <laughs> Not just throwing it in there. That's a small thing, but it's so important. It's oh, so it's, important. I love it. But don't you think that everything, like we think like everything is kind of the small things that lead to a big, big goal, right? Because like losing weight, stop eating all this shit, right? But it's, it's hard for us, you know, even like doing what you're doing, just, you know, be grateful for the food that you have and, and chew your food. We think that we do it, but we don't. But, you know, a funny, well, it's not funny. It's now that I think about it, it's not funny. But when I used to work at Wells Fargo, I had this manager for a period of time when my direct manager was on leave. Um, and she was probably, I don't know, like maybe a month or two. And she told us. Not my direct, my direct manager was great, but the one that uh, replaced her for the, for her leave, she told us right to her face in a meeting, she said, you don't have to take lunch. I don't. You can eat at your screen. That's one of those small but wildly important signals. And that was really blatant too, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe you have a manager who doesn't tell you that at all, but that's what you watch them do. If you, if you have a bunch of people that are, you're new to a company or your manager, eats while you're in a meeting, then you start eating when you're in a meeting. It's, it's, we, we start adapting. We want to belong. We want to fit in. Right. And so we start adopting these practices that may or may not be serving us. And we're all very bio-individual, right? So what works for one person, it does not necessarily work for another, but there are some healthy basics. Right. And, yeah. and so, yeah, that's one of those important signals that managers need to I be just, really thoughtful. Like, I love it. Cause I feel like a lot of companies provide these wellness opportunities and things but it's like you you can't really implement them like for example my boyfriend he gets an hour lunch but if he doesn't take that hour then he gets to come home early because he has to be there eight hours a day so he's like you know sometimes he'll get in late and he's like I'm just not going to take my lunch because I'd rather come home early because that's you know part of his mental well-being but then he'll come home just completely like exhausted and burnt out because he didn't eat all day so I yeah. just feel like these companies have these these things in place, but it's not really like offering working and serving. working and serving anyone because you can't do it. Or, for example, I had all these meetings when I was working remote and I was like, I would love to just sit and enjoy my food. But I had meetings back to back. So if I wanted to even eat, I had to eat on these meetings. Yeah. So and it that's really one of the small but unhealthy, especially over time, uh, practices that I certainly partook in and and saw a lot and see a lot still, right? We're in, how do we not have time to eat our meal at work? There's, it's like, you know, there's, 
there, there are some people that's still very much in, in not so much in tech, but but other industries for sure that, that are hourly employees. And the beauty about that, back to kind of the vacation conversation too, unlimited versus you have so many days, you have to check in and check out. <laughs> and you and you probably maybe have rules around overtime. So you have that you do it. You it kind of is a forcing mechanism to actually take the break. Um, and I'm not proposing that we all should be hourly employees, but it was, what is the new mechanism to help people that are salaried that are in back-to-back meetings, take those breaks. And, you know, interesting, interesting fact, um, you can share it with your boyfriend if you think is helpful. And for everybody else, we have, just like we have, um, circadian rhythm at night, we have something like that during the day. And we have natural flows of energy, like peaks and valleys of energy. And again, everybody's bio-individual, but but for the most part, the pattern is like 90 minutes of energy burst means you need 20 minutes of rest in order to be like sustaining energy throughout the day. So that crash at three is often because people haven't taken that break or it, it does have to be a break, but it can be if you're doing like some intense stressful work or maybe a, t- a handful of stressful meetings, try to put a 20 minute or a 15 minute block where you can do like just email responses or something a little more mindless, right? Some activity that you can still be working. Um, if you're at home, you could be like, you know, taking the trash out or folding laundry, right? Something that's a little more restful for the mind. We're going to take a break to give a shout out to our favorite sponsor. Ingrid D. Magidson is a world-renowned international artist based in Aspen, Colorado. She creates layered mixed media and abstract art. She's inspired by the beauty and nature and pieces from the Renaissance era. We are thrilled to have Ingrid D. Magidson as our sponsor, and we encourage you to support her incredible work. If you want to learn more about this artist, go visit her at www.ingridmagidson.com. Again, that's www.ingridmagidson.com. Now let's get back to the show. I wanted to ask you, where are you at now? Like with your health, with your company, and and, and how are you feeling about the, the future of, I guess, not only tech, but any, all of those big companies? So let's start with where are you at with with your health? Gosh, it's a journey. Like I'm on the journey and I am feeling so much more like myself and a lot healthier than I was a year ago. So that is huge. And I, I did spend the first, first half of, of, of the year after I left Atlassian focusing on my health. Mm-hmm. I was still finishing school for health coaching. I was starting to build Kiwi collective, but I said, I have to prioritize my health. When am I ever going to get an opportunity to do this again, especially as an entrepreneur, right? That's all, that's a whole other hard, hard place to be for different reasons. And so I just focused on improving my gut health, improving my thyroid, improving my habits, my daily rituals around my self-care. And thankfully I was able to do that, right? Partly because I had that tech job and I was able to step away from, from pay for a little while to build. And so I have a lot of gratitude for that. Um, and so I am feeling so much better and I'm still like, there's still some things that I feel like I have some curiosities about. I'm waiting to get into a functional 
um, gynecologist to do some looking into my endocrine system and all of my hormones. Like I have some suspicions, right? We have hunches. You have to trust those little voices that are like, something's still not quite right. But for the most part, I'm, I'm feeling so much better and I'm taking a lot better care of myself. That's good. That's good to hear. I'm glad. I'm glad that you, you know, that you're still going through the journey, but that you are much healthier because when you are healthier, healthy, then you can continue doing what you're doing and, and helping the world. And how do you feel about being an entrepreneur and about your company? Oh my gosh. There's like so many, it's my first time, right? So there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of unknowns. There's some days where I'm feeling so in my power and so sure of what I'm doing. And then there's other days where I'm like, who do I think I am? Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And so that too is also a journey, but I love um, being creative and I love building and I love learning. And so I get to do all of those things every single day. Um, and I think the big thing I'm focused on right now is starting to build like community around that because it can be, you know, lonely, right? If you're the only one thinking about the problems you're thinking about. So that's been my, my recent um, uh, focus is building more community within the entrepreneur space. And are you hopeful about where all of these companies are heading? Do you have hope that things will really change to, um, to benefit the employees that really are the, the heart and soul of, of each company? I think overall, I am definitely hopeful. And part of the reason I am is because I know that, and, and it's true of, you know, age agnostic, but there is more and more of an awareness within each of us that our health matters, that our well-being matter matters. And, you know, again, a big part and thanks to the experience of the pandemic and really thinking about what matters and what's important. And our relationship with work is shifting, right? Our our arrangement with work is shifting, right? We expect our employer now to give a damn about our mental well-being. Mm -hmm. And new generations coming up into the workforce have a lot of expectations about that too. So I think the ground up swell and the pressure that we're putting individually and then collectively on employers isn't going to fade. I don't, I don't believe we're going to go back. I don't believe we're going to back down from that. So that gives me the most hope. And then I think there's some really incredible companies and leaders and emerging re research that backs up the importance of investing in employees in a different way. And so I think there's going to be companies that fall backwards into some of the old stuff, but there's enough of a, a swell of, um, of us kind of, pushing upwards on employers and companies and holding a different level of expectation and standard about the relationship we have with our employers. So I am hopeful. Oh, that makes me so happy. I <laughs> love it. So can we ask her her three defining moments? Yes, we can. Okay. <laughs> okay, Jamie. So what are the three defining moments that makes you who you are today? I really love this question. Um, I've already revealed maybe some of the, the top three, but the first, and I'm kind of going in order of my life here. The first is the moment I left the National Ballet School of Toronto and decided in some way, somewhere deep down, even though I continued to dance and train, 
that it's that I was going to walk away from this profession. If I hadn't left, I would have been a ballet dancer. And my life would have looked very different <laughs> than it does right now. So that is the first is having conviction and following that voice, that little young 11, 12 year old voice that I, that it was okay to leave and that I needed to leave. Um, the next, I mean, I really think it was that first job inside of tech, inside of Sonos. It was everything from having an inspirational and supportive manager to being exposed to a very different way of thinking and working and collaborating. I mean, tech really is like highly collaborative and it makes it complicated, but makes it so interesting and working with really intelligent people, right? Um, and that also changed, it changed the trajectory of my career. It led to ult ultimately me being here, right? At Kiwi Collective and and thinking about well-being, right? It just, it, who, who would have known? Um, and then I think the third is, is, you know, getting sick, like burning out, burning out was my defining moment because it forced me to look in the mirror at what I was prioritizing and how I was taking care of myself and how I was allowing, um, my career to totally, um, deprioritize all the other important aspects of life. And I found IAN, I found health coaching. I just, you know, had a new sense of purpose and knowing about what I want to do with my life. And who knows, right, where the next chapter will lead. But those would be the three. Ah, Jamie, thank you so much. I adore you. You are a wonderful human. You have such good energy and spirit around you and uh, the people you work with are so lucky that you have this wealth of knowledge that you bring into the organization so uh, where people can find you oh I'm in all of the all of the social media places one would expect um, but you can certainly go to kiwicollective.com and I have a contact form there and you can explore my health coaching offerings um, it links right over to to that uh, portion of the business um, or I'm on LinkedIn or Instagram. This conversation was so amazing today and I hope you'll come back again. But thank you for taking the time to come and tell us about your defining moments. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for exposing the stories, right, of our defining moments. I think in the stories we can learn a lot about ourselves. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye, Irina. <laughs>